You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And he did it! Matt Cain! A perfect game! We're going to drive into left center field. Blanco waiting. He puts it away, and that's a no-hitter for Tim Lincecum. And the Giants have won the World Series for the third time in five years. And Madison Bumgarner has firmly etched his name as one of the greatest World Series pitchers the game has ever seen. Those were the moments that highlighted the legacy of longtime pitching coach Dave Rigetti, but they certainly weren't the only ones. In fact, his legacy might be even more defined by the fact that he was involved in everything. 18 seasons in charge of the staff, spanning three managers, four trips to the World Series, and countless players. We go inside Dave Rigetti's Giant Moments now. Now, now. This is Inside Giant Moments. Presented by T-Mobile, our franchise has countless memorable, iconic moments. Join Mark Willard as he connects with our former players who lived these moments to relive the emotions, the stories, and the joy. Dave Rigetti joins the Inside Giant Moments podcast, and uh, this will be a fantastic conversation, I have no doubt. Dave, it is wonderful to have you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, too. Uh, yeah. It's been a while since I talked to somebody else outside of my family, <laughs> I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a lot to get to. I mean, it's 40-plus years in baseball, which is pretty amazing. So uh, we'll kind of condense yeah. this down to Giants-related stuff. But I, I do sure. want to know this. After your 11 years with the Yankees, you're one of the top closers in the game at the time. You've got the no-hitter under your belt. But you were a Bay Area kid, so what brought you to the Giants in the first place? What was the driving force behind making that decision and leaving New York and, and coming west? You know, I think it was it was a combination of two things. Um, one, I was a free agent three years before that, <clears throat> before the time I actually did come. And, of course, the Giants were building towards the 89 series, and I was offered uh, – deals by them and the A's and quite a few teams because I was a little bit younger and I was still in a lot of people's minds should be starting because other people wanted me as a reliever. So I had a lot of opportunities to go to different places. I really didn't want to leave New York at that time, but at the, but I kind of set the, Oh, I don't know, not a stepping stone, but when we left the meetings with, uh, with the giants, Mr. Lurie, and I think Al Rosen back then, Everything was pretty amical, and I appreciated it. You know, the their thoughts on having me with the team, and uh, this was after the '87 season, by the way. And um, you know, they were on a high after going to the playoffs, and you know, and I was excited about it. But I felt like I was probably still young enough that I wanted to stay in New York and you know find a way to win there. And uh, but when I became a free agent again after the '90 season. Uh, those those same teams still called. It was Minnesota, mostly um, Oakland and um, and the Giants, and they all were offering four year deals. And you know, I at that time I uh, had a lot of pressure on me from the Players Association and being in New York. 
guys like me were supposed to carry the salaries up if we were, you know, if we were had that chance as free agents and, you know, and getting an extra year as a reliever to get that fourth year was huge. The Yankees weren't willing to go there. They probably knew they seen enough of me at that <laughs> point, but uh, to be quite honest, Mark, at that time, I didn't know how much I had left. Uh, we, it wasn't like today where kids would, maybe sit out a year, fix their arm or whatever. We we went until it broke. And um, honestly, I knew I was on the backside of it, even though my age wasn't and uh, my health. It was just my arm was, I could tell the difference. And so I was a little leery about going anywhere. And uh, my, uh, just something I've never told before, the, the Twins, who had a great team, great young team. Of course, they won two World Series during that time. Dick Such was their pitching coach for uh, Kelly there in Minnesota, and he was my first pitching coach with the Rangers back in the late 70s. And I flat told him on a conference call, I said, Dick, you've known me a long time. I don't want to take your organization's money, but I don't know how many years I got left. I don't know what your plans are. At that time, they had Aguilera closing. I think Reardon might have went through there, but they didn't know what they wanted me to start or relieve. But anyway, um, I, I I just told them I had a lot of respect for Kelly and uh, the way the Twins did things, and I just didn't want to do that. I said, if I'm going anywhere, I'm going to go to the Bay Area. And at that point, we had just um, we were in the midst of having our triplets too. So um, I thought being on the West Coast was uh, a better choice for me in the – the next deal was what to do with Oakland or San Francisco. And I can't remember all the logistics of it, but the Giants had Bedrosian still, and Brantley was a young young reliever, of course, um, and future closer. So I didn't know what they wanted to do with me, start me or relieve me. And Tony said the same thing with Oakland. He wasn't sure what Honeycutt was going to do, if I was going to be pay that much for a left-handed setup man, they're going to need more out of me in terms of you know, getting a guy on a four-year deal and all. So when it came down to it, um, I think it was real close to Christmas one, and uh, decided I was, you know, going to sign with the Giants. Um, I can't remember exactly the day, but I know this, that they signed myself, Willie McGee and Bud Black all together. We were all Bay Area guys. It was a big deal, of course, and um, I was excited about it. And, um you know, either way, I was going to be happy. I honestly didn't want to leave our league because I knew the players and I knew the bats, who I was facing. And going to a new league was going to be a different challenge. But um, that was something I just wanted to try to do. And I, deep down, you know, was a giant guy. And I didn't know if it was going to be the perfect fit or anything. But uh, I said, let's do this. And uh, that's what we did. Yeah, so it, was, I mean, uh, that's... it wasn't easy, though. It was actually... I was actually sad. I actually, the only time I sat, uh, can remember even crying over anything about baseball, when I signed the contract, I was excited, but I was also leaving the Yankees, which, you know, I've been there for, like you said, 12 years. But in my heart, I've been there forever because my dad played for the organization for for a lot of years back in the 40s and 50s. So that wasn't an easy one. That was tough. 
emotions going into one thing, you know, leaving that, that organization yeah. where you'd been for so long, you're switching coasts, you're, as you said, you're about to become a dad, you're going to a brand new league in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I don't know what I have left, I don't know if I'm a starter or a lever. I mean, that, right. you put all that into one, one you know, one-off season, that, that sounds a little overwhelming. Yeah, it was. Um, I was used to it being in the New York spotlight and being in that pressure cooker. I was used to those things, but that was okay there. I could take that. I could have Mr. Steinbrenner rip me in the paper or whatever. But, the, <laughs> but another team was different. Um, um, I didn't want, you know, the hardest part was, you, you said it there at the end, I didn't know what I had left, and that bothered me. <clears throat> and I didn't want to just, take the money, so to speak. So my whole time at the Giants was fueled by the day I signed that contract. I didn't know I was going to be a coach, but I also said in my mind, whatever I can give back to Al Rosen and Bob Lurie at that time, <clears throat> the rest of my career, I'm going to do that. Because I didn't think I'd be able to pitch the four years without getting surgery of some kind. And um, I think it lasted. I think my arm felt pretty good for about, I'd say a year, maybe maybe a little bit into the second year, but uh, that wasn't good enough. But, you know, I, I could get by, and I was glad I was able to stay for that third year. 93 was to watch that team oh. um, outside of the teams we played on or we've had the last 10 years or so. You know, that 93 team was incredible, and uh, I was glad I was able to stay there for that. I mean, it, it, that's one of my favorite Giants teams ever, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, Bonds arrives, there's there's Matt Williams, there's Will Clark, and, but at the same time, it, you look back at that, and I, I as a fan, I wonder how you look back on it. 103 yeah. wins, and you don't go to the playoffs. I mean, it's just, an, that'll never happen again. It's an unthinkable idea. <laughs> Yeah, and it didn't, of course, because the next year they came up with the wild card, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, which, you know, the other side, which, not yeah. sad, just who in the hell made the – why was it Atlanta in the Western Division National League West? Right. I mean, right. I mean, for all the teams to be – not that they wanted it. It could have been the Dodgers beating this. It didn't matter. But what were the Braves doing in the damn National League West? You know, but they were, of course, and uh, – but you know what? It was crazy. That team, uh, it got, we got beat up. Uh, we were on the DL constantly. Whether it was Matt Williams, Robbie Thompson got hit in the face uh, by a Hoffman pitch. Uh, we lost guys. I know, but everybody that filled in was incredible. And then um, our guys, you know, Swift and Burke, it carried us. But I think Trevor Wilson, Buddy Black, I think the rest of our starters just got tired and we weren't able to sustain it but i think we lost seven or eight in a row maybe more in september early september late august and uh we still won 103 games so you're looking at 100 105 to 110 win season easy but uh we just weren't able to do it and our bullpen just got gassed at the very end but they they were incredible to watch that uh watch that run towards the end, but they wouldn't lose a damn game, <laughs> you know? So that was, that was tough. That was, that was easily the worst part of my career. Um, we lost on the last day we got killed and, uh, 
sadly, you know, we didn't really have anybody to start the game, but he tried, you know, they were very right-handed and I'm sure with Torres' stuff, you know, here's uh, Dusty hoping that, you know, it would match up great with all their right-handed hitters. They had Piazza at that time, Carlos, they had Corey Snyder, but anyhow, I think that was what the hope was and didn't go to Burba or somebody, but, of course, it didn't work out, and I got put in at the last inning. Just a Dusty told me later it was like a, he knew I was gone probably, but uh, he thought it was some kind of gesture to put me in the game. I hadn't even warmed up in ten days. I said that wasn't a gesture. No. That was like sending me to the lion. So the Dodgers are. So here's a great story. You'd, you'd like to hear this. So I I can't remember what happened. I Butler I faced Butler. I don't know if there was no out or one out, but he got on. I probably walked him, and uh, he starts. You know, it's ten to one or something. I can't remember the score, Mark, but we were getting beat a lot. <clears throat> and he's got a big lead. Like, is this guy going to run? So I'm thinking about how we're going to fight, because if he takes off, am I going to go after the sorter or am I? that's a long throw. I'd have to throw the ball at him first. But honestly, all this stuff's going in my head. And Butler, I said, am I going to go? I'm not going to fight this little guy. You know, but something's got to happen. I'm Whoever's hitting is going to get it, too, whoever it was. But you could tell something was going on. I said, man, they're going to rub it in. So the next pitch, I picked him off first base. And – uh I think he ended up taking off, getting away from the tag from Will and maybe taking off towards second. And we tagged him out. As he's going off the field, I said, I can't remember all the perfect words I said to him, but I wanted to find out what he was doing, right. you know. And and as he walked past me, I wanted to watch the back of his head to see what kind of gestures were coming out of their dugout because this guy was going to run. And, um, and again, it's – 10, 10 run lead or something and we're getting our face rubbed in it by the Dodger fans of course so this is all payback because the year before 92 we're out of it and on the last day of the season in Candlestick Trevor Wilson shut them out 4 nothing, and they really rubbed it in you know and Roger had a thing with the Dodgers too and I said man I hope this doesn't come back to bite us well sure enough the next year I'm on the mound when it's going to bite us so all I know, it started a thing, and Matt Williams is yelling at their dug out there, yelling out. I said, we're going to go. Something's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, I think right. the next pitch, Piazza <laughs> hit a home run off me to right field. <laughs> but anyway, my, my career with the Giants ended <laughs> abruptly, and I got sim- summoned into the candlestick. I went home that night after a tough loss, and the next day they, they released me. They brought me in and released me, and I went, all right. But – I had another year on my contract. I said, I don't care where I'm at. I'm going to honor this thing. And uh, for Lurie and Bob Rosen for bring, or excuse me, for Al for bringing, bringing me in. And uh, that's what I did that uh, 94 season. I don't know where I ended up. I think I was with the A's a little bit. I got released, but I went to double A in Tennessee. I said, I'm pitching until this contract's done. And then I'll figure out what the hell I'm going right. to do. But uh, anyway, that was uh, – I'm sorry to get long-winded on you, but as I'm talking, it brought up some memories. But, yeah, that Dodger thing, I said, this is going to come back to bite us, you know, in 92. And then the 93, <laughs> there, there we were. 
So I had to sit there on the toughest day. Oh, I, I, really, a, really a tough day. Yeah, I tell you, Rags, I mean, stories like that are actually why we do this. And because as you're telling that story, I'm starting to draw lines and, and Giants up. fans, you know, sports sports fans, you're going to you're going to look back on a time like that and they're going to think, wow, you know, at the end of Rags contract that that didn't necessarily work out. But what you're saying is it's almost like because you're a loyal person, those those were the seeds being planted to what you ended mm-hmm. up doing post-career. It really did, because Brian Sabian was was there. He was a Yankee, head of the Yankee scouting. I didn't know Brian that well, but I know who he was, of course. And now he was assistant to Bob Quinn, and I had Bob Quinn in New York. And Bob Quinn was brought in that year, I believe, after Al was gone. <clears throat> and Bob had a reputation, really nice man, known him forever, I don't want to go on and on, but his dad released my dad back in the 50s. <laughs> and Bob got me in the 90s. And I said, you shit me? <laughs> Excuse me. I said, this game comes full circle, doesn't it? And, but Brian, Brian Sabian yep. was sitting in there for that meeting. I said, Bob, I know it's cost-cutting. You know, you're getting rid of my contract. That's fine. You know, this, you know the team's got to move forward. I'm not going to be able to help anyway, but... I think Brian remembered that meeting, and I think it ended up leading up to uh, an offer to coach in the organization a few years later, or a couple of years later. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you when you did retire, did you know right away you wanted to coach? What were you thinking? No, zero. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, you know what? I had a. <clears throat> I didn't like. Um, there was a couple things. Number one, they weren't getting paid very well, and their hours were horrible. And I, in watching right. the way coaches were come t- sometimes treated, we went through some ugly strikes. And the the people that I saw go through the toughest thing was the organizational people, where the front office was really hard on the coaches. Coaches got uniform on, so they're the closest thing to a player, and they work with these guys every day. But yet they're employees. And they're really not, um, you know, part of the, you know, the baseball contract with the players. So the players kind of put the coaches in the middle, too. So you end up in the middle, so to speak, and everything. And it's, it's just an odd place. And uh, maybe because of the way they were treated in New York when all those years I was there, they'd be fired every five minutes. I said, no way do I want any part of this thing, you know, but. In a couple of years, you know, the actual coaching part, I did. I went back and coached Little League. I coached uh, all the way up to, you know, not quite to high school, but did some private stuff, too, to help some kids out. So I knew I wanted to pass it along, so to speak, but I didn't want – I didn't think I'd want to do it in the minor leagues or do it in the big leagues again. But I ended up doing it. That's a pretty good story, too, if you want to hear it. Um, yes, I do. Yeah, I'm sitting at home, the longtime great scout GM, Gary Hughes, who lives in Santa Cruz. Um, he knew a friend of mine back east, a guy by the name of Joe Panko, and he, he said, hey, why? so in their eyes they're talking, why don't you get Dave to go to a game? Because at that time I was uh, doing a lot of charity work. I was actually, I was actually golfing. I was playing in the U.S. Open qualifying <laughs> and doing all these things. 
And uh, but I was killing time to uh, my father was sick at the same time. So I was really trying to occupy my mind more than anything else. And uh, out of the blue, uh, Gary Hughes calls me and he goes, you want to go to the ballpark with me? I said, Gary, I don't want to sit up in the stands and watch the game from, you know, or whatever. He goes, now, nah, come on. You know, you just hang out with me for the night. So I went to Candlestick with him, took me upstairs, get something to eat, saw a lot of the writers and people from both teams, uh, you know, the broadcasting teams and this and that. And then I went down near the field and I saw Dusty, of course, and uh, saw some of the guys. And uh, Danny Darwin was still on the team with the Giants. And he was one of my first teammates with Texas back at that time in 1977. So... It was a chance to say hi to Danny, and uh, I don't know, because of that, because of me being there that day or whatever, the next day the phone rang and Sabian called. And his pitch was, me and Robbie Thompson were really close, and he told me, he goes, Robbie Thompson wants to go to Instruction League, but he won't go unless you go. And I said, what? And I don't know if Brian remembers this story, but he actually tells Robbie the same thing that uh, he uh, that you know rags won't go to the unless you show up. So we're both playing against each other, so to speak. And so we both end up agreeing to go. And I called him up. I said, "You really want to go down?" He goes, "Yeah, we won't have to do anything, this and that." But back, it's not like it is now. It was small back then. It was very, very select guys and all, all your prospects. And there was only a few coaches. And it was run by the, you know, the organization. It wasn't run by the, it was, you know, your AAA managers probably there and AA. So it wasn't a, like it is now. But I got down there. There was only one pitching coach there, and it was Brian Hickerson, my old teammate. And about, I said, wow. He goes, I could really use your help. There's, you know, we got 20-something guys. And could you do I said, I've never even held a clicker before. I don't even know what the hell you what am I supposed to do? He goes, ah, just follow me around. We'll figure it out. And he quits about five days later to go on a mission to Africa to help his church. And he just leaves me there. And now i got to run this team in Instruction League, and I've never coached a day in my life. And that's how it started for me and Robbie. And, uh, you know, the after that, it's in your blood. It was almost like I couldn't get rid of it. But uh, once you start getting involved with all these kids and, you know, young pitchers and everything, I mean, it's really hard to hard not to do it, you know, so to speak. But anyway, that was the start of my coaching career. <laughs> that's, a, that's an unbelievable story. So wait a minute. Did Hickerson know when he brought you in that he was about to bail? No. No, I had no idea, and I knew Hick pretty good. I, you know, he was different. No, he had a, he's a funny guy, and we got along great. But, yeah, he never said a word to me. All I remember is Jack Hyde going, hey, uh, <laughs> here's, here's the board that brought me in the office to look at the – I was a typical young coach, just like I was a young player. You kept your mouth shut. You stayed in the back, so to speak. And so he brought me in the office, him and Tidrow were in there, and – showing me the board. This guy pitched here today, and that guy, I said, oh, Christ. So I had to figure out how to <laughs> take, take care of a pitching staff. And you know what? All the instincts took over and kind of kicked in, and I asked for help whenever, you know, Tidrow was there and Sabian was around, so, you know, it was easy. And Shane Turner was one of our young up-and-coming coaches, and he was, uh, 
I think he managed San Jose that year to a championship, but he was actually uh, in the minor leagues with the Yankees when I was there. So I knew Shane a little bit. And, there, you know, Fred Stanley was around. So there was a lot of Yankee people, Yankee and Astros, it seemed like. Gene Klein's, you know, Campy Campaneros was there, believe it or not. So that was fun. We had a great time, Danny Gladden, me and uh, Robbie Thompson. So it was it was a lot of fun to start our career as coaches. And then you work your way up to the Giants, and what is a rare story, no matter what your industry is. You, you they're your first major league team, and that's it. You you, you stayed, and it's it's amazing too. It's kind of uh, Ron Wotus before Ron Wotus. You know, you from yeah. Dusty to Felipe to Boach, uh, you stayed. How how does how does a coach hang on through all of these different transitions and regimes? Honestly, I don't know. I've never asked. The back, you know, I kept my <laughs> mouth shut, so to speak. When the dusty thing happened, it should have been one of the greatest moments in our lives, especially as Giants fans. We went to the World Series, you know. But to lose yep. it the way we did, we were, like, vilified. The place was – people were not happy. And um, they didn't understand the circumstances dances of what happened they didn't care all they know is we blew a game and you know game six and didn't play well enough in game seven and people were not happy and i know we had to uh, go back to the ballpark and do some kind of thing at the park the players were it was a mess it was really a mess our manager was leaving jeff kent was probably gone uh but what turned out to be one of the worst days, I think Dusty addressed the crowd, but, it, yeah, it was really tough. Of, of course, now we don't know what the hell is going to happen, where we're going to go. We're going to get fired. Dusty's going to take some guys with him. He did ask me about it. I couldn't leave the Bay Area and my young family and everything. I said, I can't go, Dust. So I, I figured I'd shot myself in the foot. He's going to – at that time, he had offers to go to Boston and somewhere else think Seattle he ended up taking Chicago which of course went through the Bartman thing the next year but uh, yeah. in our case in our case they uh, they hired uh, Brian went out I think within a couple of days he had Felipe and I didn't know Felipe very well at all I'd met him a few times but, uh, again, I didn't think I'd be on the staff. I thought I'd be in the organization, to be honest, that I could go back to work in the minor leagues, whatever. But, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. Felipe called me up and said, I'd like you to stay. And I said, you sure? And he said, yeah. And um, so I stayed because Felipe asked me to be. That was the only conversation I had with anybody. Brian was leaving it up to Felipe to form his staff. Felipe was able to bring in, I think, Louis Pujols and um, Gene Glenn, our third base coach. And uh, and I was able to stay on because I didn't go to Chicago, of course. And uh, the sad part was we weren't able to go to – we were supposed to go to represent the All-Star team the next year, but we couldn't because, of course, we stayed with the Giants. And I think Dusty ended up taking somebody else. But um, – the greatest thing happened, the greatest healer or, or whatever, uh, we won 100 games again with Felipe in that first year, and people forgot about the loss until we got the playoffs, of course, yep. and then we got reminded every five seconds. <laughs> but uh, that was a tough, <laughs> right. tough stretch. 
uh, four or five tough years in a row with really good teams that were capable of winning the World Series any year. And uh, we didn't do it. We got our one shot, we thought, and uh, didn't make it. And uh, But we had a lot of tough uh, playoff defeats. You know, that that uh, that 0-2 finish, you said in there, gosh, the fans didn't care what the reason was behind yeah. it. They were just mad that, that game six got blown. But I, you know, yeah. I, I wonder about it. I do. And I think that we get to a point now where fans do start to understand what was going on behind the scenes. And I wonder what your role, your conversations yeah. were like. I mean, Dusty wears that still today. You removed Russ Ortiz, no right? Doubt. You know that. But, I mean, what – Right, so what, what went into that decision? What conversations are you having? Because you guys know at that time what the fans don't, which is that Nen is physically broken down. Um, Very and, good, and yeah. So what, what were those, yeah, what were those discussions like? You know what? Um, again, I was a young coach, and at that time we had a lot of veteran people in our meetings, uh, including Pat Dobson, um, a lot of our scouts, Brian, we'd have mass meetings with these people, and they were they were the ones making a decision. Dusty, I don't know if he knew in the back of his mind if he was leaving and let these guys do their thing, but and the, the hardest one was making a making the roster. And back then, you carried eleven pitchers, and now you got Robbie Nen hurt, and we're only going to pitch him if we're leading. And um, so now you're you're without a weapon, and. Um, to be quite honest, we, we were fortunate. We played great <clears throat> going through those playoffs. But for whatever reason, if you can remember this, it was, we used to call them earthquake winters, right? October was hot. We were going to play in Anaheim. I said, man, there's going to be a lot of runs scored. <laughs> and uh, you're playing yeah. with the DHs. I said, we're going to need pitching. And uh, I should have – I think I said something, but – it, it got, you know, I don't know if it didn't get overrun or anything. People, they, they listened to what I had to say, but, um, you know, we pretty much went with the, because we had a chance to either keep Jensen on the roster or Ibar. Ibar was really tough on right-handers. He was actually really nasty, but he gave up a big home run to Lockhart against the Braves in one of the games at home, and people had a bad feeling about, don't bring him in. Well, he shouldn't have been facing left-handed hitter, but. He was really tough on righties, and I think he would have done great against Gloss and the other guys that they had in that lineup, Benji and uh, turn Spezio around or whatever you want to do. Um, But anyway, we didn't do that, and we ended up going with really less pitchers, and it affected us not only in game six, but game two. We got behind 7-0, Russ Ortiz got killed early, and we had to go, I think Chad Zerby came in and pitched five innings and carried us through. We actually got the lead and we lost that game late, but you could see then this is, we're going to go through this bullpen because, uh, you know, you could just tell. And, uh, it, and it got, it got us in game seven, um, the inning before and sixth inning, I believe Russ gave up a couple hit hard hit balls in the inning. Then he started the seventh inning with a couple hit balls right off the bat. And uh, but there was no conversation between me and Dusty about that. Dusty did those things. He was an old-time manager. He took care of his uh, everything on his own. Very rarely did he ask opinions. 
like, should I leave him in? Should I not? It was very rarely any of that. It was get somebody up, get this guy up. You know what I, we could tell that he might need help. And uh, the funny thing was when he went out to the mound, I was on the phone. I think I was getting, um, I know we had, of course, Felix was up, but I think I was getting Scotty Air up in case uh, we needed to turn somebody around. And um, I, I don't think he was up before. I know I was on the phone, and it, it's all scratchy to me. I never did see what everybody said. Oh, do you see that? Dusty gave the ball to Russ. Back in Dusty's yeah. eyes, Dusty knew he was leaving. He knew Russ might be leaving, you know, but he knew – Dusty knew he was gone. He loved Russ. And uh, Russ used to lead all our our talks before the season. He would, you know, do our prayers, team prayers here and there. Dusty really respected Russell. And um, he gave him that ball for that reason and that reason only. Of course, another team's going to use that as, hey, did you see that? Get him fired up for a moment. But that's not what did it. That great at bat by Spezio did it, and he hit it five feet far, you know, far enough over Sanderson's head. And, you know, and that was that. They got the momentum and they didn't let go. Rags, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone talk about that because that's that famous story. And, and everybody, I think, moved on with that idea that Dusty's handing Russ the ball almost as if to w- a way to say, hey, keep that game ball. You're going to be the winning pitcher at the World Series. No. So so you think it's because he knew both of them were going to be gone? I think he knew he was gone for sure. I wouldn't say that about Russ because none of us knew what was going to happen there with him and Hernandez. Yeah. By the next spring, they were both traded. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But uh, I'll give you another. This is – so this one, I'm, I'm an old school guy, and I I believe in baseball gods to a point. I don't make a big deal out of it, but there's certain things you do and don't. Felix Rodriguez was, without a doubt, one of the best setup men in baseball for four or five years. Incredible job he did for us, and uh, but he was also polarizing because people always wanted him to come up with another pitch. And this guy, he did what he was supposed to do. Our job was to get somebody like Scotty Air to help him out or Jason Christensen to give him, you know, get him away from certain at-bats, but he was dominant. And, um, but he had a thing every time he came into the game, but they never show this on these films, the manager would hand Felix the ball, but Felix being superstitious, believed that ball's bad luck because, you know, the other guy's getting taken out for a reason, right? Right. So, <laughs> Right. Felix would take the ball and always throw it away or throw it to an umpire and get that ball out. Well, because Dusty gave the ball to Russell, there was no ball to give to Felix. So the ball they gave Felix was a brand-new ball anyway. And Felix, to this day, I don't know if he threw it out or not, but that was part of his superstition. And that next at bat, of course, is three-run homer. But I hate to bring that up, but. You know, it was something you noticed. You know, you you notice certain players doing certain things every single time they come in, and you notice when they don't do that same thing. And that was the that was the deal. I don't know if Felix will ever tell that story, or but some of those guys believe in that stuff, and and you know, and it's just karma, you know, or whatever you yeah. want to call it. But yeah, the ball wasn't there for Felix to 
So whatever ball um, he got, he had to get from the umpire because the other one walked into the dugout with Russ. I mean, he yeah. didn't get to go through his process. He was out of his comfort zone, his maybe. Little, his little flip, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, eight pitches in, I'm sure he's not thinking of. Well, right. You know, right. Spezio kept fouling everything off. I said, he's got nowhere. You know, he's throwing the ball perfect on the corners. And I said, you know, he doesn't want to walk him, of course. But the worst thing in the world is what happened. And that he could have hit him at that point or walked him. I wouldn't have cared. Because the way the bat was going, there was no place. He wasn't going to fool him. It was one pitch. And he, I think he tried to come in on him. And um, I haven't watched that thing, but. Uh, I know, I know where the ball went back up yeah. on the top of my head. I had to fall yeah. that thing all the way out the right field. Yeah, yeah. Don't go watch it. It's 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 no fun. But uh, uh, gosh, and then and so then Dusty goes, and I wonder, yeah. A, what was that like for you? What was that relationship like for you? And then how how did you adjust? What adjustments did you have to make as Felipe comes in? As a as a friend and everything, Dusty was my boss. He was uh, my manager, so I I understood how to keep our relationship as friends as a friend uh, different. Because Dusty was a coach, ex player, coach before he became the manager. So you know it was a process that we were used to. Now that this guy's your boss, you know you got to there's a certain level of friendship and where it's got to be used and everything. And people just assumed that we were, you know, we were all going to go together and that would have been in a perfect world. Yeah. I would have definitely gone. But, uh, I think cause Felipe asked me the way he did and wanted me to stay. I said, you know, I knew what a good man was. I knew he, he was going to bring a different energy. I said, you know what? I, I can't leave here. I'm, I live here anyway. I can't escape it anyway. So I might as well, I can stay I'm gonna stay <clears throat> and I loved our staff I knew Robbie Nen wasn't gonna be ever right again but um, Felipe was totally different when it came to the pitching he was he was old school and he go you know he, when he wanted another pitcher that's what he said give me another pitcher you know and that's what you did <laughs> but uh, yeah it was different he was uh, it was perfect for that next year, to be honest. Um, he brought in his brand of National League ball, which some of us, some of the guys could do, some couldn't run too good. But he wanted to be aggressive, and uh, we got we got lucky. We we got some great players in. Alfonso came in, uh, Ray Durham. I uh, mean, we started feeling a little bit of a different team, and uh, we beat teams different, and we pitched our you know what's off, especially the bullpen. But our starters weren't very deep. We only had a couple of guys. I think Ponson joined us later. But it was Schmitty and Reeder, and hope you know we trying to hold things together. To be quite honest, until the young kids, I think Jerome Williams and maybe Jesse Topper came up that year. Uh, Jerome was probably ready. Jesse was probably pushed a little, but his talent brought him there, and uh, we had an incredible year. And that one ended real tough too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, at home plate there in Miami. So we thought we were destined for all these things before 2010. You know, it was it was, uh, but nobody ever gave up. Players never backbited each other. You did this, you did. There was none of that. 
the sad tough part was was watching Kink go to the Dodgers and Dusty, you know, going somewhere else. It, that made it tough, but, um, you know, you moved on and um, you asked me about how do I stay on. I don't know. You just be yourself and you work. Um, I don't kiss anybody's butt, <laughs> so to speak, but I treat them all, everybody with respect who I was working with. And uh, when Boach came in, it was the same deal. He called me. And uh, I didn't know deep down at Sabian had said, listen, there's a couple of guys that have to stay, but I've never heard those words. Um, all I know is I got a phone call and I was asked to stay. And to me, it was a dream job. Uh, Mark, I loved it. Players we had coming up and the way the organization was run and everything. You know, people, we were the envy of baseball, even though we weren't winning. A lot of people wanted to be with us. The way things were run by Sabian and down to the coaching staff and the, the minor leagues and everything. And I was proud to be, I know we hadn't won, but I was really, really proud to be part of the organization. And, you know, I just really appreciate that, you know, being, being a part of something that the way, way everybody felt about it, you know. Well, it, it, it clearly was a special time, and it's interesting that you're talking about, you know, that 03 team that wins 100 games, and you even mentioned a couple of the names that were considered yeah. the up-and-coming starters. You know, Fopper, Jerome Williams, throwing Ainsworth, I think he was there as well. And, yes, and Giants yeah, fans yeah, know that, yeah, those those guys only went so far, but as, as Bochy comes in, now you're looking at names like Matt Cain and, and Tim Lincecum. And, and right. I wonder from the pitching coach perspective, are, are you immediately able to tell, okay, these, these prospects, this is different. This is different and these guys are going to stick. <laughs> you know how I know? If you're in the game long enough, you know, you know how you know? Somebody tells you, don't mess with this guy. <laughs> Or yeah. this guy's the guy, you know, and I said, oh, really, <laughs> let's find out. You know, in Matty Kane's case, first time I saw him, he's 18, right? Um, the reason why we got these guys, we finally started losing in 04 or 05, 06, whatever it was, and we started getting better draft picks, and we started yep. getting guys like that. To be quite honest, you have to go through that to get these people. And... Uh, but Matt Cain was the start of that, no, no question about it. And he was the, he was the first one where he was different because he had, he was awkward to hit. He was, he had an edge to him, and he had three pitches, and they were all major league level pitches. And uh, at that time, you got to remember the balls were flying everywhere, just like they are now. And you had to have some talent to get through these lineups. And uh, to be quite honest, <clears throat> at that time, we're, you're trying to get guys to go, you know, I think we, you know, we got Matt Morris was brought in, you know, Tomko, people like that. We were trying to bridge the gap. Noah Lowry was our best young guy. And unfortunately, he ended up getting hurt. But even though we were losing, Noah was a winner. And um, so I was hoping we'd, we'd use him along with Kane getting better. Uh, to kind of get us going, you know, but our bullpen was always pretty good. We were deep, but, um, you know, we, we were lacking. And, uh, you know, I was worried, to be honest. I said, man, I don't know how, if I if I can outlast this by the time we get good again. And uh, even when Timmy got there and started pitching, 
because we didn't have a closer because Benitez was struggling, we used Brad Hennessy, we used uh, Herges, we used Hermanson. You know, we're trying to get by, you know, and try to get to the next phase because all you're doing is just trying to play, is competing is all you're doing. I wanted to find a way to get us over the top, and I know Sabes did too. And without a closer, we can't do anything. You can't win games. You can't close Kane's games or Timmy's. And there was a brief talk of putting one of those two guys as our closer. And Timmy looked like the guy to do it. Yeah. And Timmy would have been incredible, right? One inning, try to hit him. Yeah. uh, Yeah. He would have, but let's face it, uh, they did the right thing. Thank God. He was almost traded for Rios uh, in Toronto. They wanted him really bad. And we needed a center fielder and a right-handed bat. And uh, I think that was tempting to to the organization, but thank God we didn't do that. But we got lucky because Wilson made it, you know, and finally got through his injury stuff. And but if we don't get Wilson coming around, we still would have struggled trying to finish games. It had been a really uh, hard thing to figure out. But uh, thank God Wilson got better, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's a lot to unpack just with regard to Lincecum that you, that you, you just talked about there because I'm also, yeah. I'm also thinking, you know, there was so much talk about the torque and all that, you know, this little body and, and that wind-up. Yeah. And so I was wondering what your take was on that. And, and then uh, it sounds like there was a lot. I mean, should he be a closer? Should we trade him? What, what all was going on with the discussion about just him and, and what his future was? Right. Well, first thing I did was talk to him. I said, this is all good, by the way. When you're really good and you got – and people see things in you, this is what happens. People want you People want you to do different things. I was nowhere near his talent, but I was torn between starting relieving the New York fans would pull it in the paper. We should be a starter, reliever. Every manager, Billy Martin, Lou Pinnell, they were all asked these questions – should Brigetti start? Is he going to relieve? And it polarized the organization. And I, that's the only thing I was worried about was going to happen with Timmy. I said, we got to leave him alone, whatever it is, whether he closes or starts, and say this is exactly what he's going to do. And after the first year, we, we shut him down. I don't know how many innings he threw, probably 170-ish, maybe not even that many, but we shut him down. And... Uh, we don't know we got a 200-plus inning guy yet because we shut him down that first inning or year. Well, the second year he wins a Cy Young. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. I guess he's a starter. You know? <laughs> so yeah. but the best part of that is they're going to leave him alone, right? He doesn't have to answer that question anymore. And, uh, you know, and our job is to go out and try to help him, you know, get some help around him. And um, But, yeah, he was – Marquis easily and uh, my 40 years, Reggie Jackson, who was polarizing, people watched him until that Sosa, until the home run stuff started. Reggie Jackson was the most polarizing player where you couldn't take your eyes off him. You wanted to watch him strike out. You wanted to see a pitcher knock him down. You know, if you're a fan, you got to see almost everything in a Reggie Jackson deal, especially when he's playing for us or coming back to Yankee Stadium. And people followed everything he did, and then the Steinbrenner stuff and Billy Martin. Tim Lincecum 
was the only guy that I'd been around that had that same kind of, but it was all in good. People loved him. And I said, and Timmy did not handle it. I mean, you're talking old ladies to little kids. People just wanted to see him, wanted to be around him. Every side bullpen, instead of watching BP, the fans would run down to the bullpen if I'd throw a side while our BP started. You got people running down to the pen to watch Timmy throw instead of watching these guys hit. And Timmy didn't like it either. He couldn't work. You know, he'd want to throw about a minute and think, yeah, that's good. And, uh, because he just didn't handle that kind of stuff very well for a long time. And, uh, but there's nobody been like him, not even close. Rainy Johnson joined us, you know, for a while, and people were, wow, enamored with watching him win his 300 with us. But, I, you know, Bonds is as big as Barry was, and, and Barry got bigger and bigger in, in terms of how people, you know, were watching him. And uh, he was, you know, you could write stories on Barry for the rest of our lives and what he uh, accomplished and how he carried himself. There's something about Lensicum. I don't know how to explain it, uh, but I got, I'm throwing sides and he's throwing them. I'm standing there trying to help him. And you see the little kids and, and women crying and stuff, watching him throw. Yeah. I'm not joking, Mark. It was, and he didn't get it. He goes, man, I said, use these people as energy, man. I said, these people love you. I said, but I didn't have to live in his shoes. He had to walk and leave the park, you know, and I'm sure he got it everywhere. And he had stalkers and people that really bothered him a lot. And um, so I know he was caring a lot for the organization. But as our team got stronger and our personalities got broader, the Romos, the Wilsons, the Posies, the Bump, I think it eased the pressure on Timmy. He didn't feel like he was the main focus of all that. And, um, and I, I think our great personalities of our guys spreading out the spreading out the love, so to speak, I think made it a little bit easier for Timmy as, as a couple of years went by. But, yeah, he was, you know, incredible as soon as he walked in the camp the first day. You know, just a different you know, athlete. Yeah, that w- what you're saying, I'm, I'm wondering because his career was so impressive but also – so short, you know, kind of the, the mm-hmm. I mean, the Gale Sayers of, of Major League Baseball. And and, yeah, uh, and and I think, right, people think of that because of something physical. What you're detailing, do you yeah. think that had something to do with it? Do you think the weight just became too much? Oh, and sometimes, yeah, he went through a lot. You know, he fluctuated a lot with his personality and he loved people. He loved getting people out. He loved embarrassing guys. I mean, he loved to compete. And uh, but he he did it in a nice manner. You never saw him show a player up on a field ever. He um, but he was very determined not to let anybody beat him either. And uh, physically, he pitched a different style. You watch Greg Maddox pitch. My God, he it was like he's walking through a park and he's going to last forever. But right. you know, living Greg's his body, it's got to you know he's got to hurt too. But you know he's pitching at eighty percent, eighty five, and just making the ball move. And you know Timmy's going a hundred. And um, yeah, I worried about him from the beginning. But you got to remember all that pressure too. Um, the, his dad had a lot of heat on him for creating this style, and Timmy was going to prove that it was going to work. 
Timmy could have made anything work with his athletic ability. He could have triple pumped. He could have he could have done what Cueto did. Anything he could have done it all because he was that kind of athlete on the mound. And uh, it would have all worked, and somebody would have looked really good because he would have made it all work. But as soon as that arm started going back to 90, 91, you know, he's right in the hitting zone, and the changeup's not going to be as tough to hit. You know, it just made it harder for him, but God bless him. I mean, he, it just, but it, it was reflective on the mound, Mark. He could still stand on the foul line and throw that ball off the scoreboard if he wanted. He was, his arm to this day is plenty strong, but it lacked, it lacked, you know, that quickness, the power quickness you need to pitch. And a lot of that was his feet. You know, his feet weren't always on the ground. He was mostly in the air, but, you know, he gave us everything. You know, he gave he gave baseball every everything he had, and he's healthy. And that's the best part. I know his hips are doing a little bit better, but he had an operation there. But sorry to ramble on, but he brings that no. out, of you, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we no, wouldn't I even mean, have you... sides. Yeah, sorry, I wouldn't even throw him. I said he's wasted. He's throwing 120 pitches every game. He can't come out because every time it's the seventh or eighth and it's tied, we're we're trying to get this guy wins right. And, uh, you know, we're hoping for a run here and there somehow. And uh, without overdoing it, Bochy was awesome with him. And we never really taxed him. If Timmy said he was starting to feel it, he was done. And um, we wouldn't just – we just wouldn't throw aside. And uh, we saved his arm. And But uh, – you know he was the only, you know and he wouldn't he wouldn't mess around too much in between either you know these guys nowadays they throw like crazy but they don't throw the innings that you know Timmy did in the hard innings he never had a breeze of a game every game was three to one it seemed right I, you know I think him and Kershaw hooked up five times one year I don't think no any team scored three runs and uh, <laughs> I think Timmy lost three or four of those games. He might have lost them all. I don't know. But, um, you know, I was just uh, – these guys never had much of a breather. Every game was uh, really a grind out. Okay, quick pause to thank our sponsor, T-Mobile. It's never been more important to stay connected. And T-Mobile has taken steps to support customers along with frontline workers nationwide during these uncertain times. They've been amazing. T-Mobile responded to customer needs by increasing network capacity, lifting smartphone data caps, and increasing data allowances for schools and students in the Empower Ed program. They've also committed to donate $2.5 million to over 100 local schools and Boys and Girls Club of America, which provides childcare for our nation's first responders and healthcare workers, meals for families in need, and more. T-Mobile is committed to supporting customers, communities, and thanking frontline workers across the nation. Visit T-Mobile.com for more information. And now back to Inside Giant Moments. Yeah, and uh, as you well know, I mean, he remains so popular amongst Giants fans even today. Um, yeah. As you guys, you know, you get into 2010 and 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 the winning starts. Uh, this also means the arrival of Madison Bumgarner. And I, I want to know what uh-huh. you saw there and what that, that experience was like. You know, fortunately, we went through it with um... – like you said, a little bit with Jerome Ainsworth was the number one pick that really joined us. He was hurting from the beginning. He was never right with his arm. <clears throat> Jesse Popper 
got hurt. We didn't really have any, you know, Noah ended up having a problem with his uh, nerve problem. So we couldn't get these guys, you know, where you wanted them in terms of let their career flourish and take off. So Kane finally started doing it. And then you dealt with Timmy's, you know, rise, which was incredible and the press and everything. So the Bumgarner thing, it was, it was a little easier, but he was even more dominant than those guys in the minor leagues. I mean, he was, he was the next one, so to speak, but he also, what was cool about Madison was he joined us at the end of 09, I want to say, and uh, you could tell he was gassed. He didn't have the same stuff. I think he was 88, 89. You know, the press was going crazy. What did he do? Did he change his delivery? I said, no, he's tired. It's his first full year, and coming to the big leagues and everything, just, you know, give this kid a break. You know, so he's at that time he's 20, maybe 19. Right. I don't know. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> But there was pressure there. You know, this guy's got to do this and that. What was neat about Madison is that stuff just rolled right off his back. He didn't, it didn't even affect him. And his only mindset was to get better. And what can we do to get a little better? And uh, I said, don't worry about that damn gun. <laughs> you know, take that gun and you know what? Because um, people were thinking, oh, he's supposed to throw 95 because they see these stats. And some somebody writes about him throwing whatever he's supposed to be throwing. Madison was always a 92 to 93 pitcher. You know, in terms of speed, that could, as he got stronger, he got it up to that 93 to 95 range in, you know, 2013 and 14. But he was always a 92 guy. And um, I wanted him to understand that. Quit looking at that 95. But he was, that was one thing. He got enamored with the gun a little bit. But um, I think it was to shut people up more than anything else, you know. Because he felt fine. He goes, hey, I'm fine. I said, I know you're fine. This is called, this is what happens. You're a pitcher. You're going to go through these things. And uh, But as a young guy, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him, a lot of interviews being told how good you are. And he was trying to live up to it. And But he was amazing. What, what those guys pulled off in, in 10 was pretty cool. And to give you a, I kept my mouth shut during the playoffs and everything in the run. I knew our teams in the, National League West knew about us and how our guys could pitch. And but when we faced Texas, we had the the big press thing in the in the, before the World Series started, and I almost felt like that Jack Nicholson character, you know, in The Shining. Or now I don't know if it's Shining. Way to let it get a way to let it get a load of us, you know, or me. Right. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how I felt because they really thought Texas was going to be kind of mow us over. I think they went through the A's and the Yankees and. Yep. Or what have you, and so I, I said, you know, I'm, you know I had my fingers crossed, but um, I don't know if you remember the first inning of the first game. Oh yeah. Timmy had a couple of guys on. You remember that play at third base? <laughs> I was there. I remember. <laughs> I said, what the hell? I'd never seen that before. You know, he he tagged out Renteria, who was on our team, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, Timmy, you all right? He goes, man, things are moving fast. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, they'll slow down in a minute. And thank God they did. He was, yeah, he was incredible that year. But, uh, uh-huh. yeah, that first inning was a little scary. He got a comebacker, and if the fans don't remember, he had a rundown. And with the runners caught, he had nowhere to go. But Timmy decided to tag Renteria somehow. <laughs> well, yeah. 
It's yeah. funny, but Boats turned around and looked at me like, you know, did uh, did you teach him that? I said, no. <laughs> you know, that's Boatsy's humor. You know, did you teach him that? I said, no, I didn't teach him that. <laughs> we can laugh at it now because of what happened next. But, yeah, in the moment, you're oh, like, gosh. great, it's 2 it's two nothing now, and Cliff Lee's about to come out. This is awesome. But you know what? I mean, it fit yeah. right in. It fit right into the 2010 label, and you've sort of been detailing it about how these guys never had easy games, and that's why yeah. Kipe ends up calling it torture. And I wonder yeah, what you me. thought of that, right? Because that, what torture meant – it meant two things. It meant the pitchers do really well, but they still needed to work their butts off. And then the other side of torture was your relievers were always walking the tightrope. So when when yeah. when you think of those characteristics, those both you know affect how you are talking to your guys. So what did all that mean for right. you? Well, it meant something for me. It was it was going to mean something for the guys and everybody because uh, that's how we you know you got to think about things. I'm in a coaching room with the hitting guys that are pissed off at the fans and everybody because they're not scoring enough runs, you know. And I don't want that to happen because I have a lot of respect for them. And I don't want the hitters to think that, you know, they're not doing their job because they're trying their ass off in that ballpark, which is tough to score runs. And, you know, Kane's going through all this stuff. I didn't know the nickname upstairs was being Kane. I never heard that until a few years later. Right. But, um <laughs> You could you could see where this could split up a clubhouse. In football, it does it all the time. You hear the offense, defense stuff all the time. In baseball, it can be true too, especially on a team that in a park that it's hard to score runs. So I was worried about that dynamic yeah. too. And Sabian went out and got Cody Ross, Pat Burrell, Guillen. Who else he get? I mean, we get, next thing you know, we got we yeah. got ourselves a we're deep. And we got guys coming off the bench that could take you deep, and um, and you got our 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 guys that have been there, you know, and and you got this young pitching staff, and Denny went out and got Lopez and Ramon Ramirez to solidify Romo and Affelt, and I said, oh my God, and uh, we we I think we set a record the last month. Our ERA was in the ones. And uh, we won by one game on the last day of the season. So I guess we needed to do every bit of that. But as soon as we won, it's almost like, you know, people talk about it later, but we knew it right then. As soon as we beat San Diego, it's almost like the world was lifted off our shoulders because we we grinded so hard to get there. And as soon as we did, we knew we were going to win. And um, when Timmy walked out there and did what he did to the Braves that first playoff game, the guys felt like we 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 could win, and in deep in our minds we knew we could compete with Philly because we had the right guys, and uh, I think that's what gave us the confidence. You know, uh, it's interesting that you you bring up that last game of of the season in 2010 because uh, yeah. Boach told us uh, recently that that game was the most nervous he had ever been for a game <laughs> in his entire career, and and you're. You're sort of backing that up. Were you feeling that too? Yeah, you know, um, San Diego didn't have an overpowering team, so I, I feel like it's going to be a close game one way or another. If Sanchez doesn't get off to a good start, we're going to throw everybody at him, and we do got a good bullpen. So unless something happened in the seventh inning, you know, and you give up that big three-run homer, 
we figure it's going to be a dog fight. So you're thinking about every move and you're thinking about pitches and I'm sitting next to Posey for all these games and he's got to think about hitting, getting a big hit and also think about calling pitches for Jonathan, which wasn't easy. Jonathan was a tough catch, so to speak. And, um, but he, he did a great job. He uh, kept us in it, and then he got the biggest hit of the game. <laughs> he had a triple off of Latos and yep. I think scored the one run right before he left. But I think um, I think it helped the game, I don't know, for the Saturday. Can you remember if we played a Saturday night game or day game before the final game? Uh, I don't remember if it was before? a night game or day game. Yeah, it could have been a day game or a night game, but. I just remember it coming back really fast, and it hit. And I think maybe that was a good thing. But um, Jonathan saved the day, so to speak. He, he, because I think Kaner and Zito had a tough time, and um, just because once you get the game off to a good start, we know we're going to be in it to the eighth or ninth inning. Because um, you really tough to blow us out in that park, and <clears throat> so that's a comforting thing to know. Okay, we know we're going to play in the eighth or ninth inning. And we're just going to have to match up with these guys. And they had a great bullpen, too. But uh, fortunately, uh, I think Posey got the next big hit. He hit a home run later and got us another run. But, yeah, you know, I'm sure it was for Boach. And uh, I have a weird nervousness. My nervousness is always always before the guy throws his first pitch in the bullpen. And once he does, the nerves go away. But I think the night before, I'm sure I was super nervous. But uh, Game 7 in Anaheim was pretty nerve-wracking <laughs> for me. Right. So <laughs> right. we well, yeah, we didn't have to do yeah. that one. So. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what? I trusted oh, the guys. Man. I trusted Posey. It was fun to watch these guys compete under those circumstances. And that's why you get paid. And that's why you, you play the game. You want to be in those kind of games. You know, good or bad, they're all uh, they're good things normally come out of all of them. So, um, I'm glad we won. Thank God. The 0-2 pitch. Stricken and swinging. The ball game is over, and the Giants have won the National League Western Division title for the first time in seven years. And they come pouring out of the dugout to begin the celebration over near the first base area. Yeah, gosh, and I and going into those playoffs too. Uh, I, I bet you can shed some light on this. I, 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 it looks from the outside like you all had very few decisions to make because you've got Timmy and Kane and Jonathan and, and Bumgarner and the bullpen as you did, the very defined roles. You kind of knew exactly who was coming in when. Um, but I'm betting it wasn't as easy as it looked. So what what were those days like and, and, and what challenges might you have encountered in that postseason run? Well, I think the biggest one was a decision with uh, Barry Zito. <clears throat> I know we had a couple in the couple of guys on the bench. Remember Gian uh, was instrumental in helping us two down a stretch. I think they had to make a decision on him and I could be off on somebody. And remember Ray, our pitcher, our right-handed reliever came from Baltimore. Um, he used to be a Texas yep. Ranger, actually. He gave us a nice report on them. But we had to do a couple decisions there. But the Zeta one was tough because he'd never relieved before. And we knew in the playoffs you're going to have to be a little bit of an amoeba. Not everything's perfect. 
And in a short series, especially, we weren't going to need five starters. But we knew Jonathan was more um, – was more. Uh, even though he pitched the last day, he had dominated against uh, – he was really tough on Philly. And um, I knew Atlanta, too. He had Because we had those left-handers in Atlanta, he, he could keep at bay. And we knew Bumgarner was going to pitch. Our tough call was Zito and what to do there. And once we knew we weren't going to use him out of the pen, it was an easy, it was easier call. But um, and we just kept Barry ready, and Barry really busted, as you know what. And he pitched against the guys every fifth day, and he stayed ready because any we could make that change at any time. And the guy I was really watching was was Jonathan. You know how he handled that last game of the season. But his first game in Atlanta, he pitched great. I think he struck out, you know, eight, nine, ten guys in game two or three it was. And um, so we stuck with him after that into the next series against Philly. But anyway, I think that that was the toughest one, you know. Uh, I know we talked about it, and then I went and told Barry, because Boach has now got to go deal with the press. He doesn't want to be asked about who to – who's going to be on the team without the player knowing first. So that was my job always to go talk to the guy first. Boats could do his interviews and he can get with the player himself one way or another too. And in that case, I think he, he followed me in and talked to Barry right after I did. So um, we wanted to make sure Barry knew exactly what was on the, you know, what was going on. And we wanted to make sure the other guys knew too, because now Jonathan's going to get, all kinds of questions about Zito, which isn't fair, but that, you know, this is what's going to happen. So there's a chain reaction to everything. But so we tried to nip that stuff in the bud immediately. That was my job. A lot of it. And, um, get the guys focused on beating Atlanta. And, um, you know, that's what we did, but in a roundabout way, in a long way, sorry. Uh, yeah, the Zito thing I'm sure was tough. And I remember Guillen being tough too. And, I'm not sure I'm probably missing out on somebody, but I'm sure there was another player on the bench that we were thinking about keeping anyway to go into that series. But I know we carried 12 pitchers. Yeah. How did, how did Zito react when you, when you told him? Always respectful. And if he had any questions, he would think about it and come back and talk to you. Um, we, we had a lot of tough cop, you know, conversations for four or five years, but I think there was a mutual respect there by then. And they, we, I knew Barry was in, and I'm going to be ready, and he was. He stayed ready. Uh, the players knew he was very serious about staying ready, so anybody had faced him in those simulated games leading up all the way to the World Series, uh, they treated him with the same respect by, you know, bearing down during these things. And um, I thought it was great for the team. The way he handled it, the other guys saw it. I think if you remember um, – I know Timmy and Kane were asked about how Zito's situation was, but they were impressed by how he handled it. And the, what, what Zito did there set the precedence for the next five years because we had tough decisions with Timmy in the future, Jonathan, other people, yep. that they remembered how Zito handled it, and I think it helped us in the future. Yeah, I mean, you, every single World Series, somebody who was supposed to be a big part of it uh, whether it be right. for decision or injury, wasn't able to do it. Zito in 10, Lincecum in 12, Lincecum yeah. and Kane uh, when, when, you, when, when you get to 14. It's interesting right. because Zito 
you know, not too long ago, he had sort of admitted what was going on emotionally in 2010 and that, that he was, you know, he was feeling a lot of, a lot of angst and, and maybe some anger at what was going on. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I guess, I guess he kept it in and he didn't let that, he didn't let that filter down to the, uh, the other teammates. No. And if he did, he did it in a, in a way that we didn't know about it. <clears throat> and you know what? And he got better. He got better after that. It, it kept his, you know, once he's focused on something, he's pretty, he can get things done. You know, he's one of those guys, but his mind was set a different way up until that time and how to pitch and get people out. And, and, and most guys that are really good early in their career that go through that first five, six years, hit that wall, hit that 1500 inning mark. They're, they're reluctant to change because it got them there. And then some guys do it quickly in Barry's case, it took him a couple of years to realize he had to do something different, and he did. And it bought him a couple more years, and really incredible year in twelve. He pitched great all year, and um, uh, without a doubt, I don't want to underscore. I know he went through some stuff. We all did in terms of the pressures of his situation, but the way he handled it, like I said, and the way he worked, uh, it, it definitely helped you know, get other guys in line, so to speak, uh, as we went down the, you know, the next few years. They remembered how he handled it. Uh, speaking of 2012, and before we go to the postseason, I'd love to get a thought or two on Matt Kane in June. You know, you had pitched a no-hitter in your playing mm-hmm. days, so I wonder when you get to the pitching coach position and someone's doing this, and I know there were other no-hitters under under your time, but – but specific to that one, you know, how, how did you handle him as he's in the midst of, of, of going through this evening? What, what do you say or not say in that moment? Um, you're always coaching. Uh, and with Maddie, it was always minute anyway. There was little things to remind him of. And most of our games are close, so the guys are always hyper aware of everything. Guys getting big leads, you know, we don't want to – one stolen run, you know, at the wrong time could cost you the, a lead or a tie and <clears throat> what have you. And in this game, we got a big lead early. And so now you're going, man, we're not used to that. How's he going to react to that? So the early part of the game was keeping him focused because he's not used to four. I think it was four or five nothing right away. Or maybe he got the six or seven because I think we had a crazy inning where we batted around. But um he came out, I think, after that bat around inning. I think he walked the first guy or hit the first guy or something. I saw, oh, geez, maybe he didn't because he threw a perfect game. I'm thinking of his perfect game. game. So, yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm, oh, you know what I just thought about? I'm thinking about St. Louis. He had holiday after uh, we got the big lead against St. Louis. I apologize. Yes. You know, Scudero got taken out by holiday, and people were waiting for him to get whacked so to speak, and uh, Kane does it by accident. Everybody thinks he did it on purpose, but he did that to, you know, let off an inning. But anyway, um, I just remember the score got big, and we're not, we weren't quite used to that, and it got really big, and uh, he was painting. You know, he had great control that year, and um, he, had, he had a feel for what their guys were doing, but a couple of times, See, the hardest thing to do is the perfect game because you can always pitch around a guy when it's seven, eight to nothing. You can do whatever you want with him, 
you don't have to throw him a strike and you can walk him. So what? I still got my no hitter going. Just like with Sanchez on the last, he gave up, uh, unfortunately, uh, Rebe called an error on a play and kind of yeah. let him off the hook in terms of a walk. But I don't know if you remember, but Roland had to catch a ball against the, against the fence on a 3-1 yep. pitch. He should have just walked the guy with or hit him and saved the no-hitter. And then go, you know, go after the next guy. But both guys did the same thing. Came through a gut ball to uh, that kid that used to be with Atlanta and hit that ball out there. And uh, Blanco had to make that catch. He didn't have to throw a strike, but he's got a perf- He's got the perfect game going. So he, uh, so he felt compelled to not let anybody get on base. So he almost lost a no hitter by going for the perfect game. And it happened to Petit later on. He had a 3-2 count on, uh, was it, uh, in Ari- against Arizona, Chavez. He could have walked him and then got, you know, kept the no-hitter intact, but he had a perfect game going, so he didn't want to walk him. So that's the coolness about our game, I guess, and those, those things that arise during those games. But, yeah, talking to – I tried to keep things the same no matter what was going on. Kane had a number of games where – he would, he went into the seventh and eighth inning with no hitters. So after a while, you figured if they get to the ninth, that's different. But coach them the way you would through eight innings. If they get to the ninth, then you know maybe leave them alone unless they ask you something. So that's kind of how I looked at it. Uh, and did you do that with everybody? I mean, you went through this yeah. with with Sanchez and Timmy and even Chris Heston. Is there? Is there something you yeah. always do, or, or do you tailor what you're doing to the personality? Personality. Some guys like to talk. It makes them relax. You know, some guys, Timmy will get up and mess around with a guy or something. Um, Sanchez was pretty quiet. He always sat down by the water cooler down by the end. Um, you know, Bum is always quiet regardless, unless it has something to do with hitting. You know, he's got to get up. <laughs> If it's something to do with hitting, you know, he's, he gets more emotional about that than he ever did about his pitching. But, right. Um, yeah, the toughest one was, you know, watching Petit lose his perfect game and his no-hitter at the same time. But um, almost every guy I try to treat the same, but you would never, Mark, you never stop talking to a guy. That's the worst thing to do. So you either, you know, how you treated him all along, I think you stay that way. And like I said, if it gets to the ninth inning um, and it looks like they don't want, you know, leave them alone, so to speak, uh, that's what you do. And and a lot of times you're looking at his arm and trying to determine, okay, if he gets any hit, this guy's coming out one way or another. Do you let him finish to go for a shutout or whatever? But a lot of it determined, you know, Timmy's was the hardest ever because he had a, Christ, he had 135 pitches going into the last inning, I think, so. That was for him. That was a gift for him after what he'd done for us. And we knew his, he wasn't the same guy even by, what was it, 14? I, I apologize. Um, yeah. But that was a gift to him. I said, Timmy, you good? He goes, he goes just let me go until I give give up a hit. And I said, all right. And Boat, same thing. He, I told him he's got a great sense of humor in the dugout. He goes, hey, what do you think? We take him out right now. And I said, no, I'm just joking. You know, he's like he walked the guy in the eighth inning, you know. He's got 150 pitches. I said, yeah, go get him. And, you know, of course he wanted to. He didn't want Timmy to go through that. But, um, 
that was a gift to him. He's going, we're going to give him a shot at it, you know, so to speak. Uh, I love what you said earlier about how Zito handled 2010 because now you get to, to 2012. You guys have already been through what you'd been through in Cincinnati, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and now you find yourselves down 3-1 in St. Louis. And, and yeah. with what Zito had done in Cincinnati, you know this. Giants fans were like, well, it's been a good run. <laughs> and, and because – He's got to go out there on the road in, in game five and and just be amazing. And turns out he is. So what was that pregame session like? And, and, and you know, what, what was he going through getting ready for that one? Pretty much the same. Um, <clears throat> he always had a – they all got rhythms, right? They all have uh, things beforehand. And Barry liked to go over the hitters and everything. I said, you, you know, sometimes I would ask him, are you doing this out of respect or are you doing it to keep your mind busy? You know, because you can't remember everything. You sit down. So I used to like to give bullet things to guys to think about but not go over every guy. You can't go every pitch and every scenario. Posey just has to be on the page with the guy, you know, and make sure this is what we're going to try to do. But he had a little bit of success against that group a little bit in St. Louis. I said, you know what? I think he likes that mound, but that's about as far as I went. I didn't think. <laughs> but you know what he did that year? He walked into Colorado and threw a shutout on his first game of the year. Um, we had been beaten two or three games in a row. I think they were killing us in Colorado, and this guy throws a shutout coming out of spring training where he couldn't get an out. And, I, you know, he's just one of those guys and um, talented guy. And, if, you know, the timing's right. And if he, he – every at-bat doesn't take forever. In, in Barry's case, there was a lot of takes. There was a lot of foul balls. And there was a lot of swing and misses because of the style he threw. Threw a lot of high fastballs. A lot of change-ups that weren't put in play. And that curveball was never put in play. It was never a real good out pitch because people either swung and missed or they took it. And uh, he didn't have that pitch to get these quick outs. And it would drain him. And um, but in that game, gosh, he was great, and he laid down a great bond. <laughs> he did everything, yeah. and um, I we won that game. I had tears. I was talking to the press. I was so excited for a guy. I said he gets to live with this forever. After all, I mean, he got beat up and beat up bad on the field, off the field, and to be able to say in his. I didn't know if it was going to be his last giant start. I didn't know if it was going to be our last game of the season, but I knew he could, he was going to have a better off season than he had in four years previously. What a game he pitched. And the people, we were fired up. We got home and the guys were fired up to win. And, um, and again, he was a catalyst for it. No question about it. Just like Timmy was, the very next series, you know, in early in the World Series when Timmy come out of the pen and once he pitched the way he did in Cincinnati, the guys felt like we were going to win. Yep, yep. Uh, as you're watching Zito in that game five, are, are, yeah. are you seeing some, some 2010 frustration getting poured into that night? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Uh, we all take um, snubs or – we all do this to make ourselves better and push you or give you a reason. And, of course, he was asked. He had to answer this question constantly, you know, about 
not being on the squad. And he was on it. He just wasn't, you know, picked to be. He was. He just wasn't in there at that point, you know. But he could have been at any moment. But let's let's face it. When you know, when you're a guy that's used to starting every fifth day and you're not, you you know, it's not easy to take. And so, um, if that it that fueled the fire, so to speak. Um, you know, I guess I guess it turned out to be a good thing for us because that wasn't just one game. He he pitched great the rest of the way because the Cincinnati game didn't go well either. And um, right, I think it was at home, right? Game one or two, I think two. But um, so yeah, it was uh, it was all a whirlwind to be honest. When you're in a bubble and you're traveling and you're back and forth, with, you, you really don't have any outside access to public or anything. We're in, we're all in a traveling group together couple hundred people because of you know the front office is all there and, and a lot of our fans and everything it, it's uh you really get in a bubble but um and you're on autopilot constantly and um once you get winning that's why when teams in the playoffs they can it, they get a moment and it flips a whole series i think it's because you don't get distracted anymore you're you're in such a bubble that once you start winning you think you're going to win every game and once it and the same is true. If you're not winning, you think you can't win a game. So I think it really shines, and that part of the thing really shows up in the playoffs because you don't go home, you don't travel to a difference, and you're really stuck in this huge bubble. So um, it was a great bubble to be in, too. <laughs> so right. it was, yeah, it was fun to watch these guys go through this and enjoy this thing together. It's pretty cool. Uh, hey, Dave, before we leave 2012, uh, final yeah. pitch of the season, Romo right down the middle to Cabrera. Whose idea was that? Well, he shook him off. There was, uh, if I remember right, <laughs> you could see what Cabrera's doing, and great hitters do this. Uh, Ramirez did it to Romo. Um, both Ramirez's, Manny and uh, the shortstop, Hanley, great off-speed hitters that could gauge that sweeping breaking ball and keep it fair and take it deep. Because Romo didn't get taken deep by too many guys. Cabrera was another one. I said, this guy, you know, if we don't have to pitch to him during this series in certain at-bats, you like him to throw him up in the end, move him, do something, because he just stood there. And what these guys do, and what's, this is the greatness of Romo, sorry to, I'm going to get technical, but you got to put yourself in the batter's box. These guys yeah. gauge his breaking ball. You can see him standing there, and they don't even react. And they're seeing where it starts. And if it starts at their knees and it finishes off the plate, now they know the ball has to come behind them a little bit or at their ribs before they're going to swing. And now, But Romo does that. He knows. He understands they're doing this to him. So he'll do the big looper, and it'll catch a corner, and they'll go, okay, that one started behind me, and it caught the corner. And now he'll start one but he won't throw it as big. He'll, he'll do it tighter and smaller, and he'll start it towards the outer edge, but it'll only break two, three inches. But they think it's going to be the big one. So they stand there, and they freeze, and he catches a corner again. And in Cabrera's case, he could cover in that ball. I don't know if you remember earlier in the night, he had a, a pop-up that should have went 220 feet, and the 30-mile-an-hour wind blew it out of the park. <laughs> So we know he can flip it over there anytime he wants. But when he took the fastball that really ended up down the middle, 
he's thinking breaking ball. It started in the middle. That ball is going to be a ball off. He took that not because he was fooled by the type of pitch. He was fooled by where it started. Otherwise, this guy hit. He swings the bat, right? But he didn't even swing because he thought that was a breaking ball going to be off. And that's Romo's slider. People don't read it. They see the same spin they see on the fastball. Two and two the count. Romo shakes off Posey. Now has the one he likes. Romo's 2-2 pitch on the way. Cabrera takes strike three called. And the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And the celebration begins as the Giants mob the mound. Cabrera strikes out looking to end it. And not only have the Giants won the World Series, they have swept the Tigers in four games in dominant fashion. And it's the second World Series title for the Giants in the last three seasons. Thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah, that exactly. That right. Really <laughs> quiet in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it was, a, it was a calculated risk and a good one. Um, and so there's number two, and and then the one in 2014 has to has to be the most intricate of them all. You know, you we're, we're sitting there talking about Brian Wilson close out one, Sergio Romo closes out the next one in 2014. You didn't need a closer for Game Seven at all. And and Bruce Bochy has said that you guys talked before the game about mm-hmm. potentially needing to go to Affelt early and Bumgarner. Yeah. Is going is there uh, if if you uh, if if it goes that way? So, did it did yeah. it you know did it work out closer to plan than we realized? Because it looked like everybody went into kind of chaos mode. Yeah, the chaos was you know what what helped was um, once Jeremy came in, there was a huge delay on that call at first base on the double play ball uh, when Panic made that great play, and it kind of calmed things down because. You know, they had runners on. They were excited. No, the plan was for Hudson to go five or six innings, but right. <laughs> uh, we did talk about the first guy. We didn't want to shoot our best left-handed guy that early, but see, the way the series uh, played out, it played in Madison's hands, ended up playing, because they played at least four left-handers every game and probably five at times when Dyson played. And, uh, Every time he went to take Madison out, there was a left-hander standing on deck. You know, yep. once Jeremy pitched, all you got is Lopez. And once you lose, use Lopez, say, on Hosmer, you're going to take him out for Perez? You can't because on deck is the other left-hander, the Moustakas. So he's not going to be used. And Romo's – do we run Romo against four or five different lefties coming out at that point? Because he is your best bet, but – you know, he wasn't he wasn't on track exactly at that time. And uh, we had a young Strickland who was, at that time, we didn't know what we were going to get. And um, But the Bumgarner thing just played out longer than we thought a couple innings and bridge the gap and then figure out how to use Affelt and uh, Casilla and Romo and these guys towards the end. Again, they got a left-hander on deck, it seems like, every other bat. So... Um, you know, the left uh, <clears throat> Gordon, too. You got Gordon in there. And I, like I said, and Dyson could be in there, too. So our our biggest thing was, you know, we we're going to have to ride this thing out. I was worried because Hudson and Peavy both had tough time against all their low ball hitters. And they were a great low ball hitting team. And Bumgarner was a 
at that time was probably the best high ball pitcher in the game. So it kind of played in our hands. And um, Madison just, you know, he did one for the ages. But, again, I we're thinking three innings, I think, tops. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the outs came quick. And, uh, again, everybody said, you talk, hell yeah. You, I looked at him. We always had a thing. Pitchers never want to be asked in front of other people, hey, how do you feel? Well, how do you think I feel? You know, <laughs> you know I'm going to say no, take me out in front of my teammates. You can't ever put a pitcher on that kind of spot. And managers do that a lot, and I hated that. So as a pitching coach, I had a, different signs and different things with each guy. I would never embarrass them. Let me know, damn it, if you're, if you're feeling it. And a lot of times the really good pitchers will feel it by they start getting picky. They don't look wild, but they are. They're running away just a little bit because they're, they, they can feel they're getting tired. But in Madison's case, the beginning, he, he looked tight, to be honest. And he, he got looser as the second and third inning went by. And um, I think about the seventh inning, we were trying to – now we're figuring out let's, how are we going to set this up because we're going to face two out of three lefties down the last three outs regardless. And I think that was my main concern. Uh, can you compare what he did that night to anything that you've seen in all your years in baseball? Is there, is there anything that matches what he did that night? Uh, in terms of pitching or moments, um, moments, you know, the Reggie Jackson thing, three homers, uh, Sandoval doing what he did off of Verlander, which was right. fresh in our mind. Um, but pitching such a taxing thing and tough thing on an arm. As you can look back in the last four or five World Series, um, there's a pitcher out of every series that, that has gotten a Tommy John, whether, whether it's Sale, whether it's Miller, whether it's uh, Lance McCullers Jr., and all these starters that have come out of the pen and pitched in these playoff games, almost a lot of them are getting surgeries. And uh, my, my concern was about our guy that we love. Yeah. And uh, he was different. He, he definitely uh, is easier on his arm than most because of his size and his delivery. And the easiness, he was getting his outs and making his pitches, but – you know, moment-wise, uh, I don't know. Hershiser coming out of the pen to help the Dodgers against – or to beat the Dodgers or beat the Mets at Chase Stadium. I, you got to help me. I think I may be off. I think he beat the Mets in the playoffs. He pitched and closed the game. But I grew up in, being a Yankee. Allie Reynolds went in the pen. I mean, that's what you did. You know, Ron Guidry went down the pen after he won 25 games a year before him because Goose broke his thumb. Um, yep. You know, you – Guys are asked to do that. Josh Beckett. I mean, those guys in uh, Miami that beat the Yankees and beat us in 02 um, or 03, they used a bunch of those guys out of the pen, whether it was Willis or, or Penny or Pavano. These guys, you know, that's they won that series. So these things are – they weren't commonplace with us using our starters out of the pen, but the guys we used – Turns out to be Timmy and Bumgarner, pretty damn good, and knew how to control them, so to speak, I guess. But uh, I don't know. Speaking Maybe of that, you guys yeah. are better at that than me, Mark. Sorry. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, there's nothing. There's nothing else that uh, that matches it as far as uh, as my memory is concerned. But uh, speaking of that game seven, and we mentioned Affeld mm-hmm. a couple of times. 
He recently told us a story that just compl- – I mean, it blew my mind, Rags. And, Should he and- shut his mouth again? <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell me. He says that essentially in game seven – he couldn't see. Uh-huh. A water bubble had formed on his eye. Oh, he and Buster knew. He and Buster knew, but they wouldn't tell Boach because they thought he'd have a heart attack. But he says they then told Boach on the plane on the way home, and he saw an eye doctor uh, who said, you know, his depth perception was completely out of whack. Is Have, have you heard this or had this conversation with him at all? Um. So I watch, you ever watch uh, Curse of Oak Island or any of that other stuff? That was Jeremy every day. You know, it's like, the, you know, Skywalker Ranch every day or whatever you want to call it. No, I, no I've never heard that. I've never heard that. And uh, I, I would have loved to hear what Posey said to him. That would have been the best part. But, right. you know, maybe it helped him pitch better. Maybe he should have pitched one eye closed most of the time. You know what? He was the best pitcher in all those series. You know how good he was in three three different playoffs? Yeah. You might be talking about the most valuable player. Him and Casilla were incredible. Um, and Romo and these guys, you go back and look at their records. And unbelievable. These guys never wavered. And, uh, you know, Jeremy is the top of the list. And he was the one guy that everybody thought was going to waver, you know, because different the way he went about things, it was never going to be smooth. But getting right. a water bubble on the eye, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I didn't either. But, but, uh, but, yeah, he says he pitched essentially pitched the game uh, from muscle memory. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have any muscles. Uh, that's funny. You know, he did, he did, all their routines did get changed because Boach had to tell them all because – you know, not letting the cat out of the bag, but sometimes you have to go to the bathroom during a four-hour game, especially in a playoff. Yeah. So these relievers try to time it based on when they think they're going to pitch. Well, guess what happens in game seven when Boats tells them, hey, I need everybody ready in the second inning, you know, in case right. something happens. Right. And that means you can't go in and get do your normal thing. You go back out in the sixth, seventh. You've got to be ready. So my guess is there's a few guys with water bubbles somewhere along the way because uh, yeah. <laughs> all I saw was pitchers coming back through the dugout in the second inning. Said, what the hell are you guys doing? Right. Oh, so they were, man. You know, and sure enough, man, they we had to go get Jeremy awfully early. But, uh, yeah, Jeremy, I'm, yeah, he's funny. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Rags, what a what a ride, man! I mean, I I don't know how you look at it. I've certainly gotten to the point, and maybe this is because this is the team I've I've followed my whole life. But I mean, I I think of you as more of a giant than 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 a Yankee at this point, and and I wonder how you Thanks. look at it, and just <laughs> yeah, what this entire what this entire experience and journey has meant to you through the years. Oh gosh, um, well. I can't escape the Yankee thing forever. I'm being Italian, being a, my dad's from San Francisco. He grew up, he played with all these guys. Um, I played for Yogi Berra and Billy Martin, and um, that's never going to go away. And I was lucky enough to be given the Lou Gehrig Award for being the pride of the Yankees. So I can't not say I'm not a Yankee, but you know what? To the, the have people in the Bay Area think of me as a giant, that's enough. That's 
it's incredible to be able to represent uh, both places somehow in a little way, um, like Lazeri did, like Tamaja did, like Jerry Coleman did, all the guys that were born and raised in San Francisco that played in New York, my dad, um, I, I, I've been blessed baseball-wise. So um, what can I say? But being a part of this 18 years, you know, people seeing the waves, it was just great to watch people uh, embrace and like our team. People actually liked our guys. I don't yep. think people liked our – people had trouble with Jeff and Barry and weren't sure about different personalities we had in the early 2000s. But people loved this whole group of guys. And, um, you know, I'm happy about that because most of them were homegrown. And um, so I think the giant organization should really feel proud about this, especially our young coaches and scouts and people that dealt with these guys for all these years. And so I guess being a part of all that is, it makes you feel good that you're still part of something, you know, that people think good of. Homegrown, so just like you. Me, yeah, huh? just, uh, <laughs> homegrown, just like you. Um, this is uh, this has been a, a really fun conversation. Great stories, Dave. I really thank you for taking the time to do it. Well, I appreciate you having me. Good luck, and um, I know we're in tough times. Everybody, be stay smart because it's going to last a long time. You know, so take care of each other. Thanks, Mark. Dave, thank you. Okay, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive conversations, subscribe to the Inside Giant Moments podcast, presented by T-Mobile, now. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.